certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. The court was told today it's not impossible that Bradley Edwards' DNA ended up under Kira Glennon's fingernail through contamination. Hello, thanks for joining us for day 57 of Claremont in Conversation. You're with Natalie Bongiolo, Tim Clark and defence lawyer Damien Cripps. Now, Tim, this to me was a surprising and I think an unexpected admission today. Uh, yeah, it was a little bit. Um, so put it into context, Mr Egan had been on the stand for this. this is his fifth day of giving evidence, but this was the last day. Um, and so, and Mr Jovic has spent, you know, most half of that cross-examining him. Um, and today he got to the, the culmination, the climax of his of his uh, of his cross-examination, and it, it really got to the nuts and bolts, the nitty-gritty of it, in terms of asking Mr Egan whether he thought it was. Uh, possible, probable, likely or unlikely that this um, supposed contamination, this theorised contamination of Kira's fingernail with Mr Edwards's DNA could have happened. And uh, when he was asked this question, Mr Egan uh, said, well, it is not impossible, but he put that, a caveat on that and say because impossible is a word we absolutely very rarely use in science because we don't like to think things are impossible in science because we're always looking for the next level of research or whatever it might be um and then on the but on the back of that he did say unlikely highly unlikely very unlikely many many times after that but he couldn't say it's impossible and that was on the back of several highly unlikely events that mr jovich had actually pointed him to that had happened in the Pathwest lab in terms of cross-contamination and and things like that. So um, as a headline, you know, people might see it on the website and see it's not impossible and think, oh, wow, did it actually happen? Well, if you broke it down into odds, it would be uh, hundreds of thousands to one, I would think. Um, But Mr. Jovic has also gone to other occasions when those odds were similar, but it, it did actually occur. Can you talk us through why Scott Egan said it was unlikely? Mm, well, so yeah, quick recap. Um, we know we all know now <clears throat> that the the defence theory or the defence postulation is that Kira's DNA, which was found, uh, uh, Mr. Edwards' DNA, which was found on Kira's fingernails in two thousand and eight, got there through a contamination event of some sort in the lab. Um. But we've really drilled down as far as we possibly could in the last three or four days um, as to all the possible scenarios as to how that happened. And it comes down to windows and it comes down to dates, basically. And the dates that are important are when Mr. Edwards's DNA was actually extracted and, and, and then stored in the lab in 1996. So this is this is from an intimate swab from the Karakata victim it was actually taken in '95, but it took a year for DNA for DNA to be extracted. So we're looking at February 1996, and then we jump forward to April 1997, which we know was when Kira's body was discovered. Her post mortem was done, and those fingernail samples were taken. And it's that gap, the 13 month gap between Mr. Edwards's sample being worked on in the on that bench, the DNA extraction bench, and then 
then uh, those fingernails being um, taken and snipped and then stored in the lab, um, the same lab, um, 13 months later. And that's the gap that um, the prosecution have pointed to over and over again in the last few days saying, well, you know, what are the chances that that something 13 months down the track could possibly be contaminated because they've also produced graphics to show that at no other time were either of those extracts out of the, the box, the shelf, the freezer, the fridge, and on the same bench. So that it's that window of opportunity um, that they say uh, makes it hugely unlikely because the, the the main other contamination event that Mr. Jovic has pointed to is this um, unrelated victim and her DNA getting onto a sample from Jane's uh, crime scene. The gap there between those two um, processes taking place in the lab was, uh, was four or five days uh, with a weekend in between. So... And, and they again, they drilled down very deeply into how that could possibly have happened today, but the gap was significantly shorter, um, the extraction processes. And you could possibly see how that could happen. Even Mr. Egan said, well, we think this is how, but we can't pinpoint exactly how. But those days were approximate, whereas the Karakata samples and the Glennon samples were so far apart and so much would have happened on that bench in that time frame in between that uh, the prosecution say, well, look, the, 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 the chances are infinitesimal that, uh, that this contamination could have happened. Damien, when you hear this, you know, 13 months um, between the gaps, between when the contamination could have happened. So we're hearing a forensic scientist say, look, it's not impossible um, because we don't like to use the word impossible, but it's highly unlikely. When you mull that over, what do you make of that? Well, I would, I start to look for other things. Um, when I say other things, I start, if, if I was working on the case, which I'm not, if I was working on the case, I would, that would probably be, be a point where I would say, okay, that is what it is. There's not much more that we can do with that. Um, let's move on to whatever the next thing is. The reason I say that, Natalie, is because you, it would be extremely laborious in anyone's mind, even the most astute mind, to sit down and say, OK, well, let's go through this minute by minute, second by second, and try to establish how, how a contamination could have happened. And I think the, uh, Mr Egan's covered off on it the, probably the best that anyone could. It's not impossible. Um, but it's highly unlikely. I think that's the best way to let it rest. Mm. Yeah. And, Tim, when um, Carmel Barbagallo um, talked to Scott Egan again after he'd been cross-examined, was there anything she could shed light on in terms of what could have happened in that 13-month gap there? Well, the only thing she did point to, um, and this is a re-examination after the cross-examination, um, and it consisted of one question, um, which was how many times would that bench, that lab, that area have been cleaned in between um, the Edwards sample and the Glennon sample um, being out? And uh, Mr. Egan had a sort of wry smile and a, and a scratch of the head and then sort of did the maths in his own head. He said, well, at least one DNA extraction per day in those 13 months. 
and then one amplification which we all our expert listeners now know is when the when the dna sample is boosted um, chemically um, to get hopefully get more sample one of those a day and a cleaning process would have taken place after each one of those so at the very minimum you take two of those times it by 13 months he says definitely hundreds possibly thousands of times that that bench would have been cleaned uh, in between those two um, scientific processes um, taking place and so again that just puts another layer I suppose of improbability on the, on the, on the top of what the prosecution have been trying to say is fanciful and fantasy um, and that I mean you know there's, there's no uh, there's no getting away from that fact because we've heard so many people say so many times how many cleaning things and and efforts they go to even back in 96 97 back in the so-called primitive days of dna even then they were taking those precautions um and obviously those processes have just improved um over time so uh and that was that um it it was sort of quite a quite a sort of uh, you know anticlimactic end to what's been a long uh long stint for mr egan but it was one that really did put a full stop um, on what the prosecution have been have been tr- have been trying to show the court. And was Scott Egan able to explain any of the other contamination that we've discussed in these previous podcasts? Yeah, he did. He did try his very best. Um, he was, you know, he's been faced with these embarrassing scenarios um, for the lab that we've discussed now for, for, for several days and he did but uh, uh, many times as as in the hypothetical Edwards Glennon contamination many times he could just take a best guess of what might have happened um, because they weren't video recorded they have all the documents they have who did what when um, and then they can look at the possible um, window of opportunity when that contamination might have happened the main one that they went to today was this unrelated victim sample that was found on the exhibit rh21 which is the piece of vegetation found at jane's crime scene they did really drill down into that because that is that was mr jovich's best opportunity really or or clearest opportunity to show that it doesn't have to be someone that comes into direct contact with an exhibit i.e a scientist for a contamination to take place and that um, we heard a lot today about tubes about boxes about uh, consumables and how the extraction process was done and how those tubes were chosen and stored Um, and his best guess which is what it was was a tube that was used on the Friday was somehow uh, uh, contaminated or another tube close to it was contaminated and then used again the following uh, week and that was how the two pieces of biological matter came into contact and once again very honestly he said that was a highly unlikely scenario because we tried everything we could the boxes were kept separate the the tubes were supposed to be disposed of once they'd been used but we have the uh, the EPG the the, the spikes on the graph that show us that this young lady's uh, it turns out she was a young lady a victim of crime um, DNA was there and it couldn't possibly have been her involved in, it, in the in the rim of crime because she was only 13 at the time that Jane went missing so that ruled her out obviously uh, as a person of interest but what it did it ruled her in um, when they did, did the uh, did the test and, and tested the database and shown well, she was actually uh, in there because she was a victim, um, not because she was, uh, not because she had committed any crime. And this was the first time we'd heard 
um, where this contamination had come from and mm. who this DNA belonged to. Mm. And it just shows you now how far down they are digging into the detail because these questions arise and we say, oh, I wonder whose DNA that was that contaminated the twig. And these are the answers that as the court goes through the process, we're getting these answers. Yeah, and that's and it's what... Damien's discussed and I've discussed many times. It's it's getting to the actual, the you know, the absolute truth or the closest to the absolute truth that you can. And sometimes you've got to drill and drill and drill down into document after document after document, which is what what Mr. Jovic has done because he's he's trying to show that he's trying to create this reasonable doubt and using these other contamination issues um, to cast doubt on Pathwest um, uh, in general and the scientists. Um, as a collective, I suppose, um, but what he hasn't been able to show is a specific event which might have um, might have led to Mr. Edwards's DNA being being where it was found. Damien, we heard some um, detail about just how many documents there are the other day with Scott Egan, and he talked about when he took over. Um, at Path West that he had to go through 17, I think it oh, was, 80, Tim. 80, 70, 80, 70, 70, yeah. 70 lever arch files of documents relating to this case. And it made me wonder just how long does it take the lawyers to go through that volume of material? Well, I think, Natalie, we talked about it earlier in the um, series and that conversation comprised that um, it would depend on what your team was made up of you know like I mean um, Tim would be more familiar with what the prosecution team is made up of mm-hmm. um, and we did discuss previously that um, Mr Jovic and his team might be somewhat um, smaller in size what you would try to do is you would try to get I would have thought juniors to sort the files into categories and then try to find out which of them rise to the top as the most important port and then you'd get your more senior people start going through them to try to establish if there was anything in them but ultimately this is the problem as for for me as a lawyer the problem that I always have is I always want to see everything that's it's very difficult to say I'll get a a junior lawyer to have a look at this or I'll, I'll get one of my colleagues to have a look at this if you're going to be the lawyer that's going to be at the front running the cross-examination or or leading the witness through their evidence you need to know every single document that's in there so if you're if we're talking about a case that had 70 uh, 80 lever arch arch files files, yeah um i would have thought that the two or three most senior um lawyers in either the prosecution or the defense would have been through all of those Mm -hmm. so prepping for this um and, and being in a position to actually um cross-examine and get ready would 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 have been a really really extended period of would have taken a really extended period of time but not only that one of the things i think people think is that when you're going through a trial you can just you know you can say okay well tim clark's our next next witness he's coming up tomorrow so what i'll do is i'll get back to the office tonight and i'll pull tim clark's um evidence out and i'll go through that and make sure i'm across it but the problem with that is tim's clark's evidence may have affected all of the witnesses that had gone before so you need to know what tim clark's evidence is going to be before you even start the trial so if there's 70 or 80 lever arch files that um have come from path west just in relation to this they can't even commence entering a plea until they know what all of those files are made up of and one of the other things that we talked about briefly the other day um was when when the court breaks early like um, on days 
um, when the court breaks early and everyone gets the opportunity to go home early and um, you know go and have a bit of a break and and then I did think about that for a while and what I thought was really would be really interesting for people to know is that a lawyer might head home on the Friday night having finished at two o'clock and have a glass of wine and some nice food and spend a bit of time with the family but I would guarantee by about 10 or 11 o'clock that night they would be starting they, they, their fingers would be tapping they'd be starting to think about it and by Saturday morning they'd be back in the especially on a case like this mm. they'd be back in the office going because the last thing you want to do is come back around for when court's recalled and go you will anyway even if you spend the whole weekend working you'll get there on Monday morning you'll be like why didn't I just go through that I wish I'd had more time to go through that so even though there might be these breaks that are happening now invariably all of those teams including the judge and his team will be working overtime I mean the thing is you can't afford to miss a thing can you when you're going through this paperwork you can't afford to miss any of these details and like you said it's not something you can just hand over to the junior do you think Paul Jovic um, really the defence, prosecution, all of the people involved in this case, do they have much of a life right now? It sounds like probably not. Well, Mr Jovich manages to find a life, from what I can understand. <laughs> but simultaneously, he manages to be across um, materials meticulously. He's one of those... I mean, look, I don't know him extremely well. I've known him through the industry. Um, but what I've come to know of him, he's always uh, meticulously across all the materials. But he does um, seem to have... Um, a life from what I can tell but I think that's important okay. if, you, if you're going to survive in an industry um, that, that's so demanding p potentially like this you need to be out of balance you need to find a way um, so I think that all of the people involved in this whether it be racquetball whether it be surfing whether it be music or whatever it might be they would find a way um, to just un unwind and unpack the day somehow so um, you know I'm sure that they, they might not have as much of a life as they usually do, but they won't be able to get to the end if they don't have a life of some sort. Yeah. bit like you at the moment, Tim. <laughs> uh, yeah, a little bit. Now, well, I mean, we did discuss that with Ali last week, and it, it, it does somewhat um, overtake everything um, if you let it. Um, mm. and, and so you need to build up a process, uh, a personal process, that you are able to compartmentalise it I mean, obviously. I mean, we're just we're, we're just literally ob observing. We're not living it and and in the in the court every day in terms of you know questioning very intelligent people on highly uh, complex things. But we are trying to get our heads around it, and uh, so we're we're getting a little taste of what it might be like, I suppose. But um, you can only you can only admire uh, everyone involved, including the judge, um, for their dedication. Um, in what is now nearly yeah well day 60 will be upon us next week um and and that's and then all the weekends in between I'm, I'm sure damien's right that there's been work done behind the scenes we know that because there was a an issue that arose from a proofing session on a saturday morning so um yeah i don't, I don't think there's any been, been much time for for the <laughs> lawyers to get down a crown and have a have a meal or uh, or a bit of karaoke i don't i no. I, 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 th I think it's uh, just head in the books um and uh, right, into, right into the end. Yeah, they are doing an extraordinary job. Uh, well, I guess that wraps up Scott Egan's testimony. Um, when will we hear from Jonathan Whitaker? Yes, yeah, so um, uh, Monday, hopefully. Um, he's 
coming in on uh, the last we heard he's coming in from the UK on a flight on Saturday. But again, I stress coronavirus um, uh, permitting um, because we've just had a case this afternoon in Western Australia of a young lady who's got off a plane from the UK and has has this uh, has this virus. So touch wood, everything goes smoothly. If he does, then he will be on the witness on the witness stand for at least a day, possibly more. And then we have another witness from uh, New Zealand. Um, Miss uh, Vintner, who's another DNA expert, who will be talking about probabilities in terms of this 80 to 100 million to one against that it wasn't anyone against uh, other than Mr. Edwards. And then talking of time off to get the oneself ready for the next portion, that will be it for the DNA portion of the trial. And then we move on to fibres, but there will be a gap in between that. Um, so Mr. Jovic um, will be able to get across all the things that his co-counsel Genevieve Cleary who I understand has been doing a lot of the uh, the background work on the fiber evidence so she's been getting you know all those ducks in a row but then Mr Jovic needs some time to get his head across it as the uh, as the lead of the defense team he's asked the judge for a little bit of time to allow that to happen and he also said today that if he is allowed that time then they might be able to narrow the issues so that they will pick out as Damien just said prioritize things we don't really need to go there we don't really need to concentrate on that so let's strip it out and and just really hone in on what's going to be important um, which is obviously of an advantage to everyone in terms of the length of the time of the trial um, which is all already already mammoth and the um, and the fibre evidence will go for many, many weeks, um, I'm sure, um, yep. because we've got expert after expert after expert. And uh, it's, a, it's a very important cog in the prosecution case because they say it links not only Kira but Jane to Mr Edwards directly if they can show that these fibres came from his work pants and his work car. Yep, still so much to go. We do have that break tomorrow, but Tim, you and I will be here recording a two-part catch-up. always, mate. We will be here. So if you know someone who wants to jump in and doesn't want to listen to the past 55 days, <laughs> then this two-parter will bring them straight up to date. So if you feel like you also need a refresher at this halfway mark, uh, then... Uh, Tune in for these bonus episodes, which will drop tomorrow and over the weekend. So keep an ear out for those. Thank you both for your company today, and thanks for your company. We'll be back Monday for week 14 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont The Trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.